Welcome everyone to the Speak Your Mind podcast, episode eight, powered by Torch Pro. I'm Riley Shea and joined with me is my co-host, Tyler Smith. And today we are joined by our special guest, Nick Hardwick. Yeah, Nick had an incredibly insightful uh, perspective that, I mean, I know for me, I learned a lot, um, even the relationship between, you know, brain health, physical health and mental health, the way he articulated that. I mean, it's just something that you don't really think about. So, I mean, to be able to sit down and and listen how, I mean, going from losing 100 pounds and, you know, the, the journey he's been on and, and to now do what he does to help other people, you know, get to that proper mindset that, that they can really begin to detail how important it is to have that relationship between those three. I mean, it, it was awesome. Yeah, it was a great conversation. Nick and I actually have a, um, a connection. I grew up playing hockey through my young years with um, Nick's, Nick's wife's brother. So uh, we have a connection there from St. Catharines, Ontario. The, his wife went on to play soccer at Purdue University where they met. So um, I remember meeting Nick back when I was a young 11, 11 or 12 year old, I'd say. And I, I met Nick and he was a monster playing for the San Diego chargers. And, um, it was pretty cool. And then to be able to connect with him now is pretty special for me. So I just wanted to point that out. And like, uh, like you said, Ty, we had a great conversation and, uh, we're excited for you guys to hear it. Yeah, please enjoy. Nick, what's going on, man. Hey guys, thank you for having me. I appreciate you. No, we, we couldn't thank you enough for being on. Where are you these days? I am in, it's called Westfield, Indiana. We're about 30 minutes north of Indianapolis, which is, people don't know Indiana. It's like in between Ohio and Illinois and south of Michigan. Okay. And I can that, that was, I can that's know. after spending 16 years out in San Diego, California. Where's it's, South uh, Bend? How close, how close is South Bend to you? South Bend's probably two and a half hours up the road. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we do a I lot went, of, I went we to, ski in the winter. Yeah, you went to Notre Dame. Notre Dame, yeah. So we did we did the drive through like from the border we would cross at Sarnia, Port Huron, Michigan. Yeah. And then drive and it was wasn't the most glamorous drive, but it was cool. <laughs> no, it was, it was cool. That, so Jamie says this a lot cuz Purdue's like it's not a glamorous school. There's 40,000 undergrad. It's beautiful when you're on campus, but getting there, right? It's like that drive to get there. And so she would do the same thing coming from St. Catharines and cross the Sarnia cross over there. And then you're going through like Toledo, I think. And it's, yeah. it's not glamorous. And then you go to South Bend, Indiana, which every time I've been to <laughs> South Bend, it's like, for some reason, there's just a massive amount of clouds that form there. And it's always seems to be gray. And I said, why'd you pick Purdue? I mean, you had all the chances to go everywhere else. This is Jamie, my wife. And, and she's like, I guess it just kind of felt like home. It just, it seemed a lot like home to me. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely not the most exciting drive, but yeah, like I'm sure, like you said about Purdue, like when I went to Notre Dame, it was like campus was so beautiful and it was unreal, yeah. but just getting there was a little bit of a grind. Yeah. It's like this little hidden treasure right in the middle of everything. That's not so glamorous. Yeah. I got to make this trip now. Now I'm just like picturing it in my mind. And I mean, I live an hour away from the mountains, so I'm, I'm doing well here, but I got to make this drive, I guess. <laughs> it's one of those things where, you know, Notre Dame football is huge. Notre Dame hockey is huge. And I, I imagine like I grew up a Notre Dame fan. I ended up at Purdue and I imagine a lot of these recruits are watching the games on TV on NBC and, and seeing Notre Dame and like, Oh my God, it's so amazing. And it's just a, and then you go there on the recruiting visit and all of a sudden you're like, what is going on here? It's like, you have to really love Notre Dame to go to, to go to yeah. Notre Dame to, to end up in South Bend, Indiana. <laughs> and campus isn't even that big. Like it's, it's super, it's beautiful. They keep it like so pristine. Like yeah. every blade of grass is like, it's just, it's unreal, but it's not that big. So like, you see campus and then you're like, okay, what else does the city have to offer? It's like, <laughs> well, you probably saw it all, <laughs> but no, I had fun. Right. It was, it was a great time. I want to take it back. I want to go. Cause I mean, reading through Nick, what a transition. I mean, from playing football to, you know, quitting, winning a, a, a wrestling cha a state championship. And I mean, I wish I experienced the whole state championship 
kind of momentum that you guys have in the states because i mean even just watching a couple netflix documentaries and stuff like that it's just like wow you know like that's that's the cream of the crop and then obviously getting back into football like take us kind of through that process like how how did you lose the love and then find the love again yeah so such a wild thing like i was a athletically inclined kid, super physical, but really undersized for almost my whole life. So I was, I was tough. I loved to mix it up. I played football. I played hockey when I was a kid. I played basketball. I did baseball. Everything I could get my hands into, I was into. Like, real, I would get hardcore into it. And then I get to high school, and I had played football since third grade through eighth grade. I get to high school as a freshman, ninth grade, and I was 5'4", 135 pounds. And the coaches never put me in a game because I was super small. I just, I was a late bloomer. I didn't hit puberty actually until in between my sophomore and junior year. So I wasn't big enough to actually compete physically with the other kids in the football program, but especially around the city. And so the coaches never put me in. I don't think actually, I, I don't think I got one snap my freshman year. So I was real hurt and I was looking for something to kind of redirect my physical nature my aggressiveness and, and the athletics that I've always done. So I steered into wrestling when I was in high school and it just so happened we had an unbelievable hall of fame wrestling coach at Lawrence North high school, which is where I went to. And he had produced tons of state championships. So I didn't know that winning a state championship was such a huge deal until they told us how big of a deal it was. And then my dad took me and a group of my friends down when we were freshmen to go watch the state tournament. And it was where the Pacers used to play. It's called Market Square Arena. There's 18,000 people there. And they packed the house for this wrestling event. And they would, by the end of the tournament, in the final match, there was one mat in the middle of the arena with one giant spotlight on it. They would bring you out from the either end and they would announce all your accolades and I could just hear myself being announced. And so I thought, okay, this is the dream. That's what I want to do. Cause I don't know how big I'm going to get, but I can be tough and I can be small and I can wrestle. Let's do it. And so I just fully committed to that. And so for the next three years, it was wrestling, 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 wrestling. And I, we had great coaches, the hall of fame coach, I had great teammates. And that's, we just got so in, into it. And three years later, I ended up, I didn't win a state championship. I ended up getting second. So I was just short of achieving my dream of winning that state championship and ended up losing to a kid who was a two-timer. He ended up going on to University of Pennsylvania and had a really good wrestling career and ended up taking that wrestling and turning it into a great academic career too. So really happy for him looking back. And so I got close to my dream. And then I go to Purdue. And I thought, well, what am I going to do? I didn't know where I was even going to college. Uh, my friends even had to tell me because in the States, we have to take either the SAT or the ACT to get in. And my friends, they said, Hey, what'd you get on your SAT? And I was like, what's that? My senior year. And they said, Nick, you've got to take the SAT to get into college. And the last one you can take for the applications is coming up in two weeks. So you got to sign up, you got to do this. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate your, your insight. So take that. And then I had no idea, no real direction. And I thought, okay, well, I have no idea what I want to be the, but the most successful person that I can think of in my family was my cousin, Joe He's my second cousin, Joe McCormick, who was an air force pilot and he flew F 16s. And everybody in our family would go crazy. If uncle Joe was, they would call him uncle Joe, but he's my cousin would come back to the, the family holidays, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving. If Joey was there, it was a huge deal. And I thought, all right, everyone's cheering for Joe. So I'm going to be more like him. So I'm going to go to Purdue and I'm going to walk on to the ROTC program, which is our, it's called ROTC Reserve Officer Training Corps. And I was planning to go into the Navy and I wanted to be a Navy pilot. And it turns out I got a scholarship my second semester at Purdue in the ROTC program. And then, so earning that scholarship, then they send me to go get a medical exam. Well, it turns out I'm colorblind. And so I can't fly. So that dream's oh, no. crushed. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> I wouldn't have signed up for the military if I would have had to do something besides fly jets. I was like, all right, I'm in the Navy. I don't want to be on a boat. That doesn't sound any fun to me. I can't fly. What am I going to do? So a branch of the Navy, a department of the, in the department of the Navy is the Marine Corps. And I thought, what's the next badass thing I could do? Well, I'll go hang out with these Marines. 
and go join the infantry. And that's pretty badass. Well, as I was in there at Purdue, they were having unprecedented success with their football program. And I had subsequently gone from 195 pounds as a freshman to I hit a growth spurt probably because I was regularly feeding again after cutting weight for wrestling. And my, I hit like a second puberty almost. I grew two inches, put on 35 pounds. So now here I am at 6'3", 6'4", 230 pounds. And my friend Frank Avino from Naval, from the Navy ROTC program, he came up to me with a student paper and he's like, hey, Nick, you want to try out for the football program? And I was like, what are you talking about, Frank? And he's like, oh, they got walk-on tryouts. He's from Chicago. He's got this accent. He's like, they got walk-on tryouts. <laughs> he's like, the number's right here. You want me to call? You want to try out? I was like, sure, Frank, I'll, I'll entertain you. You know, yeah, I'll, I'll do it with you. We'll train together. And so me, Frank Avino, and, a, and another kid named David Moore ended up going off and training every morning instead of going to our regular physical training sessions with the military group. And Purdue ended up winning the Big Ten championship that year as we were kind of gearing up for it. They went to the Rose Bowl that year, and both were the first time since 1967. So you could imagine at the walk-on tryouts, there was 105 boys there. Every boy seemed like there was a freshman in college that played high school football, wanted to try to walk on to this championship football team. And I honestly have no idea why out of 105 guys, me and four other boys got picked to be a part of the team. And I guess what I'm thinking is I had a high end tight, like a Marine and I wore really tight clothes and I had really short shorts and my shirt said Marine Corps ROTC on it. And my guess is that I was like fast enough, maybe slightly big enough to, for them to go, all right, maybe he can play football, but look, he's willing to give up his life and be a Marine. What's he willing to do for us? Let's give this kid a try. What and so that's kind of, through that? what I, I don't know why they picked me. I honestly do not know why they picked me to be a part of it, but thankfully they did. And I get, I mean, the, like the story goes, I just like made the team. I started as a outside linebacker or as a linebacker being 230 pounds. They quickly realized I was too slow to be a linebacker. So they moved me to defensive tackle, threw me in the defensive tackle room. The guys were 300 pounds. And basically I figured out I need to eat a lot. I need to eat. I need to lift and I have to gain a lot of weight. So I gained 50 pounds over the next five or six months, got from 230 to 280 worked myself into a position over 15 months to play, to actually play. And then my second training camp that I would have been there, they came to me on the second day at the, at the team hotel. And they said, Nick, um, look, we, you're doing a great job at defensive tackle. We're actually going to move you to guard tomorrow. If that's okay. And I was like, no, it's, it's not okay with me. That, that doesn't work with me. I, all I wanted as a walk-on was to either be on the punt return team on the kickoff return team. Like I wanted to get on the field and I'm going to get on the field this year. There's no doubt about it. I'm either in a number two defensive tackle or number three defensive tackle. Can I just stay? And they go, no, what you don't understand Nick, is you're going to start tomorrow at left guard. And I said, oh, okay, well that changes things. Oh, man. Like I'm, I, I'm, uh, I'm open to start. So I started at left guard that year. The last regular season game, our center gets hurt and goes down and they move me to center for the bowl game. It just so happens we play university of Washington. There's an all American defensive tackle that I have to block every play. I had never snapped. I had never called any blocking assignments, but here I am. And right when that game happened and kind of that week, two weeks leading up to it with the bowl preparation practices, I figured out that I'm a pretty damn good center and I could maybe make some money out of this and played another year at center. And then, I mean, three short years after walking on, I got drafted with the third pick of the third round 2004 draft to the San Diego chargers. And 11 years later, I ended up retiring after 146 career starts and, a pro bowl and being on the 50th anniversary team for the chargers and being their team. I got to be the team captain for five years. I mean, it was like, you were cousin you, Joey. You can't, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You can't draw it up like that guys. I don't know. It's like, you know, people with like, what's the key to your success? I was like, you're blessed by God. I don't know. I was like <laughs> divine intervention. Uh, 
serendipity. It's just the way that it was meant to be, I guess. And of course I worked hard and I did the things that were required on my end. I did a lot of sacrifice, a lot of discipline, a lot of work and did things that a lot of people wouldn't have done, but I was blessed with his body. I was blessed with his brain and I was blessed with plenty of opportunities that I just so happened to be able to capture at the moment that they happen. And, and the further removed I am from the game, the more I look back and it's just, it's bewildering how it all happened. <laughs> it's like, do you ever read the book outliers? Yes. Or, yeah. Oh yeah. It's kind of, I mean, it's, it's similar to that whole, like that story. Right. And I think it's, I mean, you get guys that like, I, I wish, I mean, listening to you, it seems like you understand that pretty well, but like, I wish some guys would take a step back and just like understand that it's not like the, they have a lot of God-given talent. It's not like they, the swagger that they hold and like sometimes the way that like they, they hold themselves and treat other people. It's like, they're the man, but like, it's like, no, you have been dealt a really good hand. You're doing a lot with it, but like the attitude. That's it, Riley. Too. Yeah. Dude, that's it. I, I got the chance for several years to, to be around the team. I was the color analyst. I did a TV show for the chargers. And so they'd let me talk to the rookies when they came in. And I always started off every presentation to the rookies with that is like, I would take them through, you know, here's how you manage your body. Here's how, you know, take care of your money. Here's some things to think about. Here's how we game plan, how we take it from the game plan to the film, to the practice field to the game you know we kind of layer these layers on and then at the end i would put up a slide of a chromosome and i go you guys know what that is that's dna right that's your dna and i said don't think for a minute because you're in here and you're lucky enough to be in this room that you're better than anybody else i go you got yeah. lucky you had the right parents at the right time whose dna matched up just right so you could sit in this room I was like, but it doesn't make you better than anybody else. It doesn't make you better than your equipment managers, the janitors who clean up after you and you're all a bunch of filthy animals. It doesn't make you better than the front office staff. I was like, you're lucky as hell. You're lucky to be sitting here. Now make the most of it, but don't yeah. treat people like crap because they watch you on TV for their entertainment. Like it, it does not in any way give you yeah. that. Yeah. So yeah, I remember, so please, I remember don't, when please I, don't abuse this ability. I was in Buffalo last year and I remember we had a coach, Ralph Kruger, who was an amazing man. He was just, his things didn't work out with our team. He ended up getting fired, but it was not a reflection of his coaching abilities or anything. He was just such a good person and very good communicator. I remember him talking to us similar, like points out the Zamboni driver doing the ice. And he's like, I guarantee you, none of you guys can do that right now. And he gets paid whatever his salary is, which is a lot less than what the guys in the locker room are making. But then you just, you can kind of go on to every, like the teachers who taught you growing up, the just whoever, like they, you probably can't, if you were in their shoes, you, there's a good chance that you're not able to do what they do. You just are lucky that you're able to do something where you make a lot, a lot of money and people kind of appreciate you a little more. Um, so I just, I don't know. I just think that's such a good thing for guys to remember. So I'm glad you, you point that out. Cause sometimes the young guys come in and <laughs> they think they're shit. Yeah, you stink. just, you just, so you really, it's like, Oh, it's like, look at me. I did all this. No, you didn't. No, yeah. you didn't. You had, you had a parent or a guardian or a coach or somebody who cared enough about you to drive you to all those practices that, ungodly hours and spend countless amounts of time in the car with you, giving you those little mental lessons to carry you through those down periods that we all have, or to help knock you down enough when you were up and everybody that saw a lot of potential in you that then gave you more opportunities and, and presented you in the right spots. And so many mm -hmm. people sacrifice for you to be in that chair. And you're lucky enough that people want to watch the sport that you play. You know, it's like, you could, you could have been a curler and you're not getting a lot of money out of that, but it's yeah. still challenging. There's still a lot of things that are dangerous. I mean, be a cop. Nobody's getting, they're not getting paid what they should be getting paid. Be in yeah. the military. They're not getting paid what they should be getting paid because they can't put it on TV and, yeah. and people aren't going to watch it. We can't promote it. And so it's, you know, there's uh there's a lot of real life things out there that are way more challenging than playing sports. So yeah. keeping that in perspective, I think is, 
is probably a great way to, to go about like practicing gratitude while you're skating around the ice and you see all these fans there. It's like, Holy, look how lucky I am. You know what? It's yeah. like when you realize that you don't, it's funny when you're playing, you're like, let's go to work boys. Let's go to work. It's like, hold on, let's go play. You know, let's, let's keep in mind that we're really just playing here and maybe that'll release the pressure a touch. Like remember when you, Philip Rivers used to give us a great speech. Like when we were only a couple of times that we, I think only once we finished under 500 for the season. And I, I remember very vividly at the end of that year, one of the last games that we were playing that it really didn't matter, but it did matter because we were playing. He goes, remember this, remember when you were five or seven or nine years old and you used to go out in that backyard and, and dream that you were playing in the NFL and you're running around in a Jersey and playing in front of people on national television and the stadium was going crazy. He goes, I know this game on paper doesn't mean anything. We're out of this sucker. He goes, but that it, this game does mean something to that little seven-year-old that lives inside of you. This game yeah. does mean something, you know, and let's not lose sight of what we're out here doing. You are living your dream, regardless of what this game means in the whole context of the season. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, sorry, Riley, I'll, uh, I, this just brings me back to my coach in humble. Like he, he just like taught us so much, like so much perspective. And like, he had his core covenant on our wall and like every word from loyalty to kindness, to community, to family first. Like, I mean, there were so many things that as a, you know, whether it's a professional athlete, a junior hockey player, I mean, you just lose sight of, and it just gets completely overlooked. And he had, he had such an, a captivating way of, of bringing us down and just make, making sure that we are present in each day, whether it's going to help out with the Humboldt Special Olympics every Monday night and playing floor hockey with them and seeing the joy on their faces when we show oh, up cool. or, you know, whether it's like going around the community and shoveling driveways after a five foot snowfall. I mean, there's so many things that, I mean, it just, it's so refreshing and fulfilling to be able to really appreciate those moments and appreciate the fact that all these people in this community or all these people in this city are taking the time to go watch you play the sport that you love. That's, that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And then to give back, I mean, what a great coach to find a way, not only, Hey, we're going to put a good product on the ice, but to give, to actually give back, right. To, to rally the guys enough to rally the team enough to go, Hey, we're going to, we're going to play floor hockey. We're going to, yeah. we're going to go shovel. You're going to shovel driveways on an off day. I mean, how many teams could you talk into that? But that's really, it comes down to having the right company culture that this is part of what we do. We're servant leaders inside of our community. And I think that's, that's the sign of a great leader is somebody who's finding ways to use what they have to serve others. He wanted to bring in good hockey players and good people. And that's what he did. And that's why even practicing gratitude, like I, Every time I meet uh, a firefighter, a, a cop, uh, EMT, whether it is, whatever it is, I, it's so nice to just say thank you because you don't, even, especially that day. I mean, I couldn't even possibly imagine the emotional injuries that they experienced that day coming to the scene to help us, you know, to help us. So, anyways, go ahead, Riley. No, I was just, I was just gonna ask Nick, like, how is it when he played, like, that community outreach stuff, and I feel like. And hockey, it's starting to take steps further and further. But I feel like in the NFL, you guys always do a good job of kind of making sure guys are accountable and guys are doing something to relate to the community or um, however it fits in their life. But was it a pretty, like, were you guys pushed to do that? We were. And, you know, every several weeks you were asked to do something by the team and presented with an opportunity to go visit a hospital or go somewhere and, and use kind of your influence really to brighten the day. The, the cool event that the Chargers always did in San Diego was the annual blood drive. And it had been going on since I think the 80s. So one of our kickers, he's, a, he's on the 50th anniversary team. His name's Rolf Benershka. Rolf had a, a, a infection that he was battling that almost cost him his life while he was playing and he needed crazy amounts of blood transfusions to keep him alive and that then turned into the chargers blood drive which then went on for years and years and years so it was a really cool thing that it's so simple for us 
that we would just show up and sign autographs and take pictures for several hours, but it would draw thousands and thousands of people out to the convention center every year to give blood because to get in line, to get a picture, to take an auto, to sign an autograph, all that you had to give blood. And mm -hmm. so using that kind of stature, I guess, in the community to be able to draw people to you for a great cause that's what it's i mean at the end of the day if you the more of that that you can do the more that teams can do the better off everyone will be yeah, yeah. it's definitely tough sometimes like i mean i don't i know i've caught myself in those ruts where you like you come off a hard practice or you you have a hard game or whatever and then you have an event and but it goes back to exactly what you're saying it's like those moments where you can catch yourself and kind of appreciate and and yeah fill yourself with gratitude and start to understand like okay well this is way bigger than me this is bigger than me being a little tired like you know it's i think that's so important for guys to understand and you probably do this too now is like ours was always on tuesday and so tuesday was our off day and it was always like in november when the season's kind of stacking up on itself and you're just exhausted and you want to go home as soon as you can and lay on the couch. But here we are on Tuesday doing some servanthood. And there's, I think just naturally, and it doesn't even matter. I mean, like you go to a charity event now and it's like, Ugh, I have to go, you know, but then there's that like barrier. And once you get past it and you show up and it's like, well, we show up. Like we always went to the blood drive. Once you're there, you just feel like such a jerk, don't you? For even having those thoughts in the yeah. first place of like, God, yeah. why are they asking more out of us? Like, what more could you get out of us at, at this time? Or like you're in the middle of a, we had some down seasons, right? Like we all do. And it's like, you're going through a lull. Maybe you're coming off of a loss on Sunday. You're feeling bad about yourself. And you just want to sit and watch film and be by yourself and like have lifted weights, eaten. I want to rest. I want to get ready for the next game. And now here we are going to the blood drive, like having to go to the blood drive. <laughs> but then when you show up to the blood drive and you see what it does for the people that you're just there, you go, I'm such a jerk. And this is so awesome. And I'm super pumped to be here. And then you're always reinvigorated to even double down harder on the work. So it's like, so if you can get past that there's always that weird barrier. Once you get past that, it's so good on the other side on so many different levels that yeah. it's like it reinvigorates you. It gives you more energy and it encourages you to work even harder because look what these people are doing just to see you. Like they're yeah. putting a needle in their arm and giving blood and yes, they're doing good, but they're doing it because you're here. How cool is that? Do you think that runs parallel? Those, I think like those feelings, like, I mean, a lot of those feelings are just, it's kind of just, you're helping people and it always feels good to help people, right? Do you think those feelings like run parallel with what you do now in terms of like your, like Hardwick life and, and your like, I don't what you call like, just like the personal training and guidance and mental training, things like that. Like, I feel like, well, one, I think a lot of people want to, want to be, um, trained by, or, or conversing with a professional athlete someone who's done it someone who's put their body through it yeah but then too like i just think like for you like you get a lot of you have to get a lot out of that personally right that satisfaction that you're helping people and it feels good no oh it's oh it's the best yeah. it's the it really is the best and it it i guess it it takes a while and it takes having people get success through kind of your guidance and like on part of your team to feel that. But I had a guy, uh, his name's Brian Buffini and he's his brother, Kevin introduced me to Brian. Brian's a very in their whole like family, their family's incredible. He's got a big podcast, the Brian Buffini show, and he's a real estate coach to real estate agents. And they impact like 25,000 people a year. They have these giant coaching systems. He's got like 150 employees underneath him. I mean, he's massive. And he called me into the office one day and he started like, it's a super rags to riches thing for him. He came over from Ireland with just a couple of bucks in his pocket. And now he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars based on the work that he's put in and his family's put in. And 
how intelligent they've handled everything. And he called me in one day after I got the chance to meet his brother. And he goes, Nick, just so you know, and, and this was like one of the most enlightening experiences I ever had was he goes, just so you know, it was never your destiny and never will be to be the one standing on, on stage with your hands in the air, being the champion, holding the Super Bowl trophies. Like that was never your destiny. Your destiny is to hold other people's hands up in the air and show them off because they're the champions and you're going to be there and you're going to be a part of it. And you're going to be guiding them. And once that kind of hit me, that realization, I was like, you are so right. Like quit chasing the glory of holding the Lombardi trophy and getting that moment. You know, I got second in the state of Indiana. I didn't get a, I didn't get the, the big medal. I got the silver medal. You know, it's like, I was second team, all big 10. I, I finished second in the AFC. We lost in the new England Patriots. And I was like, you are so right. It's not about me. It's about everybody else. And once that hit, then I, my focus just shifted to how can I help serve these people? Like, obviously there's people that are attracted to you for a reason. What is that? And it's like, it's the inspiration, it's the motivation, it's knowledge, and just a little bit of guidance. And when they have success, it's better than when I have success. Like I, I expect success for myself, but when other people get it and are taking your advice and it worked and like my first client ever lost a hundred pounds in seven months, I mean, he is so incredible and so inspiring and people are losing like all this weight and they, they come back every week and we just, and it's not like the, the cool thing for me is it's not, Hey, they're dealing with Nick Hardwick, the NFL player. They're just, it's me and them. Like we're on a team. Like these are my friends. I'm actually taking a trip this week with a couple of guys that have been in my program. Like these are my people, you know? And it's not like, I, I don't want them to like hold me in high regard or anything like that. Like we're on the same level. We're working here and I'm just throwing out ideas and I want your ideas too. We're working together through this so you can achieve the most out of your life. And, and if the more people that I can help, the better. And it's, it's such a powerful feeling and it's really intoxicating when you get off of a phone call and you know, you have a client just share so much deep stuff with you that you hope helps him take it to the next level or her to the next level. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. I think intoxicating is the perfect word. Like I never, ever anticipated myself being a public speaker, doing this with Riley, like doing all these, all these things where I technically talk about me, which I hate doing, but in turn, it, it directly can help somebody else find that hope or find that inspiration to, to take that next step. And I mean, I, I would love to touch on, you know, your relationship with mental health and physical health. You know, you touched on how you put on from 230 to 280. And I feel like obviously you've been become super in tune with your body over these years of, you know, weightlifting, eating and all that. And I guess like, how has that relationship between the mental and the physical really evolved and allowed you to, you know, not just help these people on the physical side and losing, you know, losing the weight, but also allowing them that confidence within their own mind to, to really just push, keep pushing. It's <laughs> so there's a great book out there that I highly recommend to anybody who's kind of interested in the brain and mental health and physical health. It's called spark by Dr. John Rady. He's a medical doctor. He's a Harvard professor. He's an, I don't know how many books he's written, but he's, he's a great author and a great scientist, a research scientist and a practicing doctor. So the, the relationship between mental health and physical health, it's impossible to split the two. It really is. So physical health is mental health because the brain is the body. It's not, we used to talk about it in terms of brain and body, like they're two separate entities. No, it's the brain is the body. It's part of the body. The eyeballs, Dr. Andrew Huberman will tell you, are the last part of the brain to develop and they push out from the brain as the baby's embryo in, in, the, in the mom's body and they push out and that's the last part of the brain to develop. So we're like, oh, the eyeballs are separate from the brain. No, the eyes are the brain. That's why when you're playing sports, you can only hit what you see. You got to keep your eyes open to be able to hit the puck. I always marvel at hockey players who 
can deflect like a hundred mile an hour slap shot coming out. I was like, how in the world is that even possible? Right. It's like, it shouldn't be, it really shouldn't be because when you think about reaction times and all that, it's like, I don't know how that happens. I don't know how baseball players hit a 105 mile an hour ball over the fence. I, I don't know how I was able to, to, when you would break down some of our film and we were pass blocking, like pass blocking is one of the most intricate dances that happens in all of sports. It's like, I'm trying to box a guy's chest who's coming at me, who's trying to chop my arms down and get past me and kill this man behind me. And, and we're talking about fighting like small grizzly bears. And so I got off topic a little bit there, but I really do believe physical health is, and here's how I'd like to phrase it really is physical health is brain health is mental health. So you can only have as good a mental health as you have brain health. And you can only have as good of brain health as you have physical health, because those two are the same. So everything is really all the same, you know, the way you sleep, the way you eat, the way you exercise, the activity levels that you have throughout the day, the amount of water that you drink on a daily basis. Do you have a spiritual practice? Do you have a gratitude practice? Do you have all these things? Because they're all the same. You know, it's like, how do I eat better? Well, you got to sleep better. You know, how do I exercise more regularly? Well, you got to reduce your stress some in some meaningful way. Well, how do I lose? You know, it's like all these, they're all the same. And every the way you do one of these things is the way that you're going to do everything. And you can get by for a little bit, cutting your sleep out or not mitigating your stress in one way or another, but eventually it comes back to get you. So the mental health thing for me is, it's like, it's really, uh, I used to, to kind of laugh at it. I'm like, Oh my God, toughen up, you know, toughen up. Like, what are we talking about? I grew up in the eighties and my dad used to kick my ass and, you know, it's like crying wasn't acceptable. And, you know, on the offensive line, we didn't share a lot of emotions. I've talked to teammates recently on my podcast that I had no idea that they were homeless growing up and, you know, they, they were in shelters and it's like, God, I wish I would have asked deeper questions than, you know, like, what'd you do last night? Because there's, everybody's got these great stories and, uh, but mental health really hit home for me when I retired and I got hurt week one of 2014. And it was a bunch of stingers in my neck. And basically I was having uh, nerve impingements coming from bone spurs, coming from bulging disc and coming from stenosis in the spine. So every time I get hit, my arms would shut down. And so it sounds, it, I don't know how much nerve damage you had, but it was like my, my fingers would lobster claw together. Yeah. And I'd had it before where I couldn't lift a gallon of milk out of the fridge without it just completely collapsing on me. And so you'd rebound and I had two or 300 of these. And eventually the doctor said, Hey, bud, we don't know the long-term effects of this. You can't keep going. You're not welcome to play anymore. And I said, Oh, thank you. Because I would have kept going because <laughs> it, while it hurt like hell, it's like, I'm not going to quit on my teammates and I'll finish this season out. But it was the last year of my contract. It was my 11th year in the NFL and I proceeded very quickly to lose 85 pounds. And I showed up to my retirement press conference. I weighed 208 pounds. At my all-time high, I was 308 pounds. And I thought, okay, I've got this retirement thing whooped. Like, I've saved all of my money over 11 years in the league. I've lost all the weight. They said that was going to be a major thing. So the health concerns, I don't really have to go through. Not not too concerned about that. I had a job lined up. I was going to be a DJ at the radio station. I announced it at my retirement press conference. I was like, you can find me starting Monday to Friday from six to nine more. <laughs> yeah. Six to 9 PM on one one five KGB spinning classic rock in San Diego. I was like super excited at my retirement press conference. And then one of my big initiatives leaving the league was to help the team get a stadium built in San Diego. We failed on that, but I announced that at my retirement press conference. So I had like purpose. I had passion. I had a career. I had my money saved. I had a great family. I had kids. I had a wife who loved me. I had my health. Like I was walking away with almost everything. And then two months out of the league, I called my boss or I, I walked inside the house and it was like Saturday. I'd been working at the radio station for about a month, month and a half. And Saturday morning, I woke up and it was like, the world was ending. And like, for whatever reason, I just felt like I was falling off of a cliff. And I was so confused. And 
stuck mentally and I was crying. I just had broken down so hard. And I walked inside and, and Jamie, my wife was holding our youngest Teddy, who's a year and my oldest Hudson sitting on the couch watching bubble guppies or something like that. And I was like, I don't know what's going on with me. I don't know what's wrong. I'm going to, I'm, I'm checking out. I'm going to go to Nicaragua. I'm going to leave you with everything, all the money, the house, just give me a million dollars and I'm going to go and I'm just going to live because I don't, I don't have any purpose here anymore. And that was basically me saying, doing everything, but saying, I'm going to kill myself and you can just take whatever you need. And just, I'm going to, I was like, I'm going to Nicaragua. What the hell's in Nicaragua? Like I'd never been there. I'd never heard of anybody who's there. I had no idea what happened in Nicaragua, but here I was going to Nicaragua, but essentially it was a big cry for help, right? It was like, I don't know what's happening to me. I'm scared. I'm checking out. And that was my first real bout of mental health issues. And Jamie looked at me and she looked at Teddy and she looked over at Hudson. And she's like, you're not going anywhere, buddy. We're getting you help. And since that moment, I like, I have real empathy for mental health where I could have maybe sympathized before I have real empathy of what that's like and how scared I was and what really could have happened to me. What could have happened to my family, the, the trajectory that would have changed. I've lost teammates now to suicide and addiction and all sorts of stuff. So mental health for me is such a critical component and to kind of bring it all back with the, the mental health, the brain health and the physical health. I guess for me, one of the main reasons that I am so passionate about getting people healthy is because without your physical health, you can't have brain health. Without brain health, you can't have mental health. It's not possible. And I've seen the scary side of not having mental health. And I've seen how incapacitating it can be and how isolating it can be and how scary it can be and how detrimental it can be to your whole family, to all of your friends, and kind of the wake that mental health can leave. So my whole deal is lose the weight so you can reduce the stress on your joints so you can continue to work out for longer because working out and exercise is the only scientifically proven way to stave off neurocognitive decline. And as combat sport athletes like hockey and football and military guys and UFC fighters, I think the primary concern should be the brain and taking care of the brain and finding ways to either restore it or at least maintain what you have. And really the only way to do that is to eat good foods, to exercise, to maintain a good body weight and to continually pump fresh blood and oxygen up to that thing to give it a chance to restore itself. Yeah. Do you, I'm curious. I know Ty dove a little into like when you exited the game and you kind of just went on a little bit of a, Re, like I don't want to say a rehab but like you you just started to sort of figure this some of the stuff out from a cognitive standpoint and your brain health and everything I think we are we are both curious on what that process was like because I know I've had like I spend a lot of my summer doing like neurological chiropractic and going to see like a functional neurologist to work on like you were talking about before like eye movement stuff and um reactionary stuff and like some oxygen stuff while playing certain cognitive game, a lot of that stuff that was never around when I first started playing. So um, I'm curious what that process was like. That's awesome. And I'm super glad that that's hockey. I have to say like watching from the outside hockey does such a great job of handling brain injuries and, and we're really the first ones to not just pay lip service, to concussions or to traumatic brain injury, but to actually doing something about it and holding a guy out and going, Hey bud, we don't care. We know you're going to lie. And you're going to say you feel good because you want to get in. You don't want to let your teammates down. Sorry. You're not allowed to. And I think that's really responsible and I'm yeah. super happy that hockey did it. And now football's doing it. And it took a long time for football to break that old status quo of the, the silent or the, uh, invisible injury of, of brain injury, because I mean, I have to admit, even in 2013, 2014, we're looking at guys who aren't playing, who had concussions. Like, I don't feel right. And you're like, you look fine. You know, yeah. like I had had six diagnosed concussions and here I'm the asshole going, you look fine play. <laughs> so I'm, 
I'm super glad that you're doing all that and staying proactive and getting ahead of it because really you could look at, and, and hockey is probably more telling is look at a guy's statistics before a concussion, look at his statistics after a concussion. It's really telling. You just can't perform for a period of time after having a concussion. So it's not worth having the guy on the field anyway. Yeah. Or a guy having a guy on the ice. So I'm, uh, when it comes to it, like, what, what do I do? What do I think works? I had, I went to a brain treatment center in San Diego and I got done. It was transcranial uh, magnetic stimulation. It's M-E-R-T, magnetic e-resonance therapy. And basically it's like stim, you know, if you get it on your muscles and they send electrical yep. impulses deep in your muscles to stimulate it same thing with the brain but what they're doing there is they're firing into specific locations in your brain which based on your eeg that you gather and look at your brain waves and how they're firing they try to first smooth out the brain wave patterns and then align the neurons and so they fire harder and sometimes faster or sometimes slower like in my case, I'm a high theta wave producer, which is like a meditative state. And for high functioning people, that's probably not the best place to be. Like you want to be a little closer to alpha and beta. But for military guys, and I got this from a Navy SEAL friend of mine, for those guys, they want to be drawn down a little bit. So they're not always so amped up and chomping at the bit and, you know, looking around and because your heart rate gets elevated uh, you start to start to feel like the walls are closing in on you a little bit. So it's like how to calm them down through their brain waves. And mm -hmm. there's so many cool treatments out there. You ever use that? You ever use that new calm? Have you ever I haven't, I've seen it, but yeah, I have not it just, used it. It just bring, like when you, when you talk about the brainwave stuff, that kind of, yeah, like that's the whole point of it is just to bring you down to that like parasympathetic state where you're using, like it just plays like neuroacoustic music and you yes. close your eyes for like 45 minutes and it's supposed to take you from that like more wired driven sympathetic state to be a little more relaxed but yes. like it, I, I think, think i think it's great that. yeah i think it's great like what you're saying like even to have that outlet and like as a hockey guy like i'm not like an overly physical player but like you still get like bumped and you like it's a physical game but yeah. just to know that there's those outlets and they're making headway with it. Like that used to be like you get a concussion and it was almost like, forget about talking about it. Like <laughs> I didn't ever want to hear. I never, I still to this day, never watched the movie concussion with Will Smith because I was like, oh. I don't even oh. want to talk. I, I don't want to see any of that stuff. But now you're starting to see like, there's some, like you have the ability to recover, rewire and kind of make pro or make progress in that that area so yeah, it's, there's, it's promising there's tons of, there's tons of neuroplasticity in the brain but you have to keep working and you have to give it a chance to rejuvenate itself you can't just shut down and we call it like caveman mentality you can't isolate you can't shut down you have to socialize you have to push yourself past uncomfortable boundaries to get back into society to work to communicate with people uh, to play mind games like you're playing. The eyeball stimulation is such a, a a really powerful deal. There's tons of things that you can do, but sitting around and waiting on the brain to do something, it's it's like a muscle. It is a muscle. It's yeah. it's only going to grow and become more powerful if you continue to use it. And I honestly can say this, seven years out of the NFL, six concussions, 30,000 head hits, my brain today is stronger and I'm smarter and I feel better connected than I've ever felt before. I'm sure I've had to work around a ton of different parts of my brain that may be finding ways to shut down or trying to shut down due to the concussive episodes. But I just, and it's in me, I guess, to continue to work and to push past those and to not be encumbered by them as, or I guess be encumbered by them as little as possible. Yeah. Jeez, oh, that's oh great. my gosh. I, I just learned, <laughs> I just read a book. I feel like <laughs> this is amazing. Um, yeah. Like, I guess this is kind of touching on, you know, the brain health and, and, uh, but we had Joe Holly on obviously, and he touched on, yeah. you know, how, important it is to be spontaneous and to be present. And I guess, 
you know, you touched on utilizing your, your new roles with the chargers post career as ways of kind of challenge yourself mentally. Like, was there certain things that you learned about or about yourself through these experiences? I mean, I love getting uncomfortable and you probably tied same thing. Like you get on stage and you're presenting to people and I think the one thing that former athletes miss out on a lot is finding ways to get into flow state because when you're playing, you're in group flow and you get these really cool things where you're just picking up on signals from players. You're not talking, you don't have to communicate. I just know where you're going to be. You know where I'm going to be. And when you're really clipping at a high level, man, you're just in this incredible state of flow that most people don't ever get to experience. And I've, I've heard people even theorize that what athletes miss the most is maybe not identity, although there's a strong identity component to all of it, but the getting into flow and having that adrenaline and that dopamine. So you get on stage and you get going and all of a sudden you're just, you're, you're in tune with the audience, the way they're reacting to you. Uh, the words that are coming out and you change your stories and, and it's just, it's an incredible experience. And Riley still gets to do it on the ice and getting into flow is like the greatest thing. So through all those experience, what I figured out really was that I like to perform. I like to, I like to get into flow and I'm super curious. I just want to know how things work, why things work the way that they do, how to different. And I, I love the body and I, I guess I've, I knew I loved the body when I was playing and I love the mechanics of everything and how it works, but I just love how it kind of all ties together and uh, just learning as much as I possibly can. I mean, and got a, got a book right here. That's like, this is a, a textbook that I read just in my spare time, right. It's like training to, or studying to be a certified strength and conditioning specialist for what reason other than really to just challenge my brain and to continue to find ways, new ways to grow. And I guess offer my clients a little bit more, but mostly like have a better understanding of the body and the brain and, and the way it interacts in the world. Yeah. I yeah. Love that. yeah. That's been, that's been a big focal point for us for sure. Is that getting comfortable yeah. doing things that are uncomfortable, right? Getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's, I, I think, uh, yeah, that's, I think that's the biggest thing. And I think even, you know, Riley and I doing this, I mean, once again, we, I don't think we would have ever anticipated this five years ago. Let's be honest. I mean, it's so yeah. refreshing now to, I'd love to get your take on, you know, you see your Calvin Ridley's, you see your Antonio Brown or your, uh, mm-hmm. sorry, you know, like all these guys, you know, taking some time for themselves and, you know, even yeah. in hockey, Carrie Price, Jonathan Drouin. I mean, there's so many guys now that are being able to exp- express their vulnerability in a way that 10 years ago would have been completely labeled as weakness. And I think like, how do you see that now? Yeah. Simone Biles, right. You get all these examples of athletes saying, Hey, I need some time. I need a little bit of space. Um, I think it's a great step in the right direction. My concern is that we're not doing enough on the front end to prevent them needing to eject in the middle of the season and potentially being disruptive to something that they signed up to and something that, and people that are counting on them, right? Like team USA is counting on Simone Biles to perform and she hits the eject button in the middle of the competition from both sides of it. I see it. I see it from her side where the pressure is staggering and Hey, it's not worth losing a life to compete in this. It's not worth, you know, my mental health, damage to compete here or you know calvin ridley same kind of thing the next wave for me and probably the most important wave is how can we set these athletes up to be more resilient on the front end and have better mental health management strategies so they can continue to compete so they can continue to be the person that their teams and organizations need them to be but also take care of their mental health at the same time. So I think that's the next stage for me in this whole thing. And I think this is a step along that timeline, but I really do believe that there's another evolution of this coming. And that evolution is building resilient athletes that know how to self-manage this mental health and not have to say, 
I need it. And, and yes, by all means, if you have to take a, a step back, take the step back. But if not, let's find a way to get ahead of that. So we don't have those moments where we feel like I can't compete. I can't do something that I love. How can we continue to get the best of both worlds where you're healthy and you still love to compete? Yeah. Yeah. Like that's even, I mean, when I went back to Humboldt, I mean, I did so much physical preparation because I, I, I knew my body was at a fragile state. You know, I take one hit collarbones gone. I mean, I don't know if my, I had all this anxiety about this, my aneurysm, you know, like there were so many things that I was just thinking about where I'm thinking to myself when I get there, it's like, why didn't I do the emotional and the mental prep? You know, like I'm going into all these environments and all these atmospheres where I'm not seeing the faces I want to see, but I mean, we're just so, we're just so used to doing that. You know, we're just so used to being that physically dominant, um, you know, and just blinders on. And I mean, it was such an eye-opening experience. And I mean, I was in a position where I was able to quit. You know, I was able to walk away. I, I was my 20 year old season. I'm like, I'm good. I, I just need to go home. But like some of these athletes, I can imagine the pressure is a whole different, is a whole different barrier to try and break through. Yeah. Yeah. When you've got sponsorships tied to you or entire, like Simone's got entire countries behind her, right? It's like, how do you do that? And how do you do it responsibly? And you're right. Like coming off of physical injury, there is a mental component to that there's a big mental component and you're fighting that battle in your hotel room before a game. And you're fighting in the locker room leading up to the game. It's like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this and then finding a way. And this is huge to be able to actually do that. And then having that breakthrough moment, because you were able to push yourself to get out there to do that, that you could prove that, Hey, I can work through this. And when you do work through that, then you build confidence to work through so much more and you just kind of continue to build off of that. But you're right. Like those physical injuries, those traumatic episodes that you have, those will take you back down to just square one and you've got to build up from there. And I think teams are doing a much better job now of having team clinicians on site and within the program that are there daily. It's not, we, when we were playing, when I was playing, we had one session with a team clinician with the entire team. I didn't get to talk to him one-on-one. It was the entire team one time. And now you've got them embedded in the teams, working through these situations. They're there when on demand, on call, 24 hours. And that to me is, is powerful. And it's important that teams are doing this and recognizing that and to have our people when we need them, that we better pay mind to their mental health too, because there is a lot of stress that goes into this. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome stuff, Nick. That's, cool. I mean, yeah, that was great. <laughs> yeah. That Thank was you provide us with a, lo- a lot of good, uh, a lot of good guidance. And I think it's awesome what you're doing now and obviously a hell of a career. So, I mean, thank you so much for coming on with us. Yeah. Thank you. And I'd love to have both of you on my podcast too. Let's yeah. do it. Any, any we'll time. It'll be a home and home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We can do that for sure. Maybe right Riley on. and I will. Riley, you have a game tonight. Trip. Yeah. We got the, we got the penguins tonight. I'm, I'm trying to like loosen up here with my whole, like exactly what we were talking about. Like the stresses of game day, you know, like wake up in the yeah. morning and immediately just, it's all I think about. Right. Yeah. Just trying to kind of get the mind working in different ways and not have it all I think about, you know, cause there's, there's more to life than just hockey. So yeah, <laughs> doing Good. something like this, I think helps me play with a smile, man. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. There it is. Okay. Well, play, Nick, we appreciate you a ton. It, it's crazy. I think about it all the time. Like you're trained, you can't help it. You want to win so badly and like caring more. You're not going to like try to win more. You're just naturally, <laughs> you want to win. Like, it's just what you are. You're going to work to win. You're going to hustle to win. So go have fun, man. Go have fun. I'm going to try to catch the game. Well, dude. Yeah. Thanks again, Nick. We appreciate it, man. All right, guys. I'll be following you, bud. All right. Bye-bye. All right. See you. Thank you, guys. Thank you.